episode 334 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by Peter Olson, who I believe is in Brooklyn and uh, New York. Uh, Peter is, of course, our guest today. Um, he is the author, most recently, of the forthcoming book, The Only Way to Play It, which is... I suppose you can call it a poker novel. Um, I don't think fundamentally the book is about poker. I think it is more about uh, a, a, a relationship and a, a time in a person's life. But poker plays a big role in. I mean, it is uh, the, the milieu of the book is the underground poker scene in New York. And um, one of the interesting things about Peter. Well, actually, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, so Peter also. Some of you may have read. Um, the book One of a Kind, which is uh, a biography of Stu Ungar. Um, Peter has also written the books uh, Take Me to the River, Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie, and uh, Atlas from the Street to the Ring. Um, so the thing I was starting to say about Peter, he actually is now represented by uh, an earlier guest on our podcast. Some of you may have heard our interview with uh, Doug Stewart, or my interview, I think uh, Nate was not on that episode, but my interview with Doug Stewart, who is a literary agent. And one of the things that Doug was uh, lamenting in our, in our conversation was that there hadn't really been a great poker novel, um, that, that you know, for as, as, as rich of a field as as poker is as a, a literary subject, and we agreed that it was, um, there really has not been a lot of great literature around poker. I don't think you can point to you know, a, a book and say, you know, this is this is the poker book in the same way that you could point to rounders and say, you know, this is this is the poker movie. Not that there haven't been other poker movies, there won't be other poker movies, but, you know, if you wanted to point to one, I think you would very clearly point to, to rounders. I don't think there's a lot of disagreement about that. Um, so you know, I, I don't know whether uh, the only way to play it will will become that book, but I do think having uh, I've read the novel myself, and um, I do think that Peter does a great job of capturing the, the feel of poker in a way that you know only only a serious poker player can. I mean, it's not a book written for poker players. It's certainly meant to be understood by a, a wider audience than that. But you know, I think that's a, a craft in its own right is being able to share the unique experiences of poker with a larger audience uh, and address whatever misconceptions they might have and also just kind of convey the, um, the, the, the passion that poker players have for the game and also just the, the unique perspective that it gives you and the, the kind of crazy world that we occupy sometimes and you know it sort of makes, makes apparent things that if you've been in the poker world for a long time start to seem normal to you and uh, it's interesting to you know get the perspective of oh this is actually a pretty crazy thing that happens in, in the poker world so I enjoyed the novel I'm looking forward to talking to Peter about it and uh, I would encourage you if you're at all interested in uh, novels and poker to check out this book 
uh, the only way to play it. Our strategy segment today is coming to us from Zachariah. Zachariah says, hey, Andrew. First off, I am closing in on one year playing poker. Your podcast and books have helped me grow a ton. I can't thank you enough. I play one three no limit at poker rooms all across Texas. Uh, Because of the laws here, they are rake free but charge an hourly fee. I am consistently winning and working on building up my bankroll. I'm going to share a hand. I'd be interested to hear your strategy input, but it leads me to a bigger question around room selection. This is my first time at this particular room in Houston. I don't have a lot of reads in my opponents other than they are friendly locals with deep pockets and they love to gamble. <clears throat> so I'm going to share the whole hand with you along with Zachariah's thoughts because um, I mean, I do have some thoughts on, on how to play individual streets, but I don't think that's the most important thing about the, the hand, nor is it, you know, as, as Zachariah says, um, nor is it the main thing that he's really asking about. So I'll give you the whole hand first. <clears throat> the button straddles for $6, small blind, big blind, and under the gun limp. I am under the gun plus one with ace of diamonds, queen of hearts. I raised to $30, the hijack, the button, and the small blind all call. So we're four ways to the flop with about $130 in the pot. I believe the effective stacks are around $400. So we're looking at a stack to pot ratio of about three. Uh, The flop is Queen of Clubs, Queen of Diamonds, Six of Diamonds, and our hero again has Ace of Diamonds, Queen of Hearts. We are four ways to the flop. Small blind and, uh, or small blind checks, and hero says, I like to check. I'm almost certain someone is going to take a stab at this, and I feel confident getting my stack in right here or on the turn. Also, I do have the nut flush blocker, so I can potentially bluff a weak flush if a third diamond comes on the turn or hit a fourth. 6-6 could be in someone's preflop calling range, but it's unlikely that I've run into it, right? Hijack bets $45, button folds, small blind calls, I call. Turn is the eight of hearts. Small blind checks, I check. Hijack bets $75 into a pot of 253. Button folds, small blind calls, I shove all in for $325. Hijack calls, small blind folds. River is the nine of clubs, making the final board queen of clubs, queen of diamonds, six of diamonds, eight of hearts, nine of clubs. Our hero has ace queen and loses to the hijack who has queen six. Questions. What do you think of my shove on the turn? How often am I good here when I shove? Hijack's small bet sizing look like a flush draw to me. If he had six six, I thought he would be betting closer to 40 to 50% of the pot rather than 20 to 25%. The preflop action is very indicative of how the table went all night. Opens of $25 to $30 often went four to five ways to the flop. Your books have developed my ability to range opponents, but I felt like it was totally impossible at this table. I probably could have gone heads up to a flop with a preflop raise of $100, but then my opponent's range is going to be heavy with pocket pairs and I can always whip the flop. This is quite unlike any other 1-3 game I've experienced, so it leads me to wonder if this is really a 1-3 game at all. Is this a 5-5 or a 5-10 table in disguise, or maybe this is just a table of nonsense? The experience left me feeling like I was missing a crucial element of the game, but I think that perhaps I just don't have the bankroll to play there. I don't think I'll be returning until I have a much bigger bankroll, if ever. Thanks again, Zachariah. Um, I want to address the last question first. The question of, you know, is this really a 1-3 game? If it is routinely being straddled, the answer is no. If you know there's a straddle practically every hand, 
then you know you're playing a one three six game or, or whatever the straddle is, and that influences a few things. Um, I mean, now it may not influence the buy-ins. I mean, you might still be capped at buying in for say three hundred hours. I don't know what the rules are on that. So the amount of money that you're risking on any given hand might um, might not change as much. Like that might still feel similar to a one three game, but you're going to play big pots much more often and you are more shallow. If you're sitting with a $300 stack in a one three six game, then you really have a 50 big blind stack rather than a 100 big blind stack, which is what you would have on a one three game. So you need to keep that in mind. I mean, that's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Uh, it does mean that you are going to play $300 pots more often than you would in a 1-3 game. Your standards for what counts as a hand strong enough to put all your money in will need to be lower if you're only playing with 50 big blinds functionally instead of 100. Um, you will... I don't know if it's quite right to say you'll experience more variance, but the magnitude of your um, deviations will be higher. In other words, um, it will be more likely that you will win or lose $1,000 in a night in a 1-3-6 game than in a 1-3 game. Uh, you know, certainly more likely that you could win or lose $2,000 in a night in a 1-3-6 game. So you know, should you have a bigger bankroll for playing a game that's routinely straddled? Yes. Um, should you bring more money with you to the casino? Yes. Should you be prepared to potentially lose more money in a game like this? Yes. Um, and you are going to be at a disadvantage if you don't have those things. Um, and you know, if, if especially if you're not even really bankrolled for one three, like I have no idea what Zachariah's bankroll situation is. But you know, if you're not even really bankrolled to be playing one three, like let's say you maybe only have five thousand dollars in your poker bankroll. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty limited for, for playing one three to begin with. Um, for playing one three six, it's like you're going to feel that hurt a lot more often. Like it's going to be entirely possible that you know you could have a couple of bad nights and lose half your bankroll without really doing anything wrong, and that's going to influence your ability to play well in in future games. Not just psychologically, but because you know you legitimately would have to start worrying about I can't really afford to take another loss, um, or my bankroll is going to be depleted to the point where I can't play anymore, and you know, that's going to affect your ability to take the appropriate risks. And especially in a wild game where people are putting money in with a lot of hands, it's also going to be correct for you to put money in with a lot of hands. And that just means, you know, more more big pots going back and forth. So maybe I've answered that. I mean, maybe, maybe there is more variance. There's a really important distinction here, though, which is that um, it sounds like the straddle is optional. It sounds like Zachariah is probably not straddling. And that's a pretty huge advantage. I mean, if everyone else is paying $10 in blinds per orbit, or many other people at the table are playing $10 in blinds per orbit, and you're only paying $4 in blinds per orbit, that is a huge advantage. So, you know, as long as you can stomach playing this game on a limited bankroll, I think the potential edge in this game is quite large if you're able to get away with not straddling when everyone else is. You're still going to have to accept the proper strategy for the game. Maybe you can be a little extra nitty, like you can essentially afford to give up a little something. I mean, I, I, I so rarely recommend this to anybody because people take it way too far, but you know, you might be able to afford to give up a little something to try to limit your variance a bit. Um, maybe fold in some spots where you think you have a small edge because you don't really want to be gambling for you know a thousand dollar pot or whatever but 
you know, and I think you can afford to get away with that because your edge is so large if you're not paying a straddle when everyone else is. So if people are fine with that, you know, if it's not like a controversial thing in the game that everyone else is straddling and you're not, if you're able to get away with that, um, and that works for you, like bankroll wise and um, in terms of what you can you can stomach, uh, then it is a pretty good opportunity. Um, hand reading. Hand reading is a misnomer. Hand reading is not about reading hands. It's certainly it's not about trying to identify an exact hand that your opponent has. This is a fairly common uh, concern that I hear from people, usually in smaller stakes games, but anyway, you know, in, in, in very loose games, people will say, you know, it's impossible to hand read in these games because people just call with anything. You know, they'll, they'll call with queen six. And so how am I supposed to put them on queen six? You're not. It, it, it's not hand reading is not about figuring out your opponent's exact cards. I mean, I, sometimes it gets portrayed that way. You know, like you see Daniel Negreanu or somebody on TV, and he's you know trying to identify people's cards down to the suits. That's not really what you're trying to do. I mean, range reading might be a better way of, of putting this. Um, I have some material on this. A lot of it actually is either on um, on Tournament Poker Edge. I have a series on hand reading. Um, I have also written an article called uh, Hand Reading Made Simple. The idea here is that, and I mean, I guess to some degree I talk about this in, in the Play Optimal Poker books as well. The, the point isn't to figure out your opponent's exact cards. It's just to figure out what kind of hand he likely has. And often you're not even able to narrow it down to one. Sometimes you're just able to eliminate one. So, I mean, broadly speaking, I'm going to say that there are three kinds of hands. There are extremely strong hands where your opponent is interested in getting all of the money into the pot. There are extremely weak hands where your opponent is interested in bluffing, you know, hands that, that can't win at showdown or unlikely to win at showdown, and so have an interest in trying to steal the pot with a bet. And then there are medium strength hands that they're kind of like bluff catchers. You know, these are hands that don't necessarily want to play large pots, but can win if the pot is not that large. And so when I talk about hand reading, a lot of it really is just trying to figure out which of those categories make more or less sense for your opponents, given the way that they've played, and also which categories do you want them to have? Like what, which of those categories can you potentially profit from? And that affects the way that you choose to play your own hand. So with that in mind, let's go back and look at some of the hero's decisions here. It's the straddled pot and the button straddle, one, three, six. So the blinds act first, the blinds have limped, um, the straddle, or sorry, under the gun limps. And now hero is next to act under the gun one, he's holding ace queen. At this point, there is already $24 in the pot. The button, both blinds, under the gun, already $24 in the pot. So I do think $30 is an overly small raise here. Um, that's especially true if you're playing in a loose game. Now, I do want to clarify something. The point of raising is not necessarily to get the pot heads up. Whether or not your opponents call the raise is not up to you. I believe Nate said this on a much earlier episode of the show, that you know preflop raise sizing is not like a dial where you can just turn it up or down depending on the number of calls that you want. What you can do, though, is think about what kind of stack-to-pot ratio do you want to have on the flop? What kinds of hands do you want to get called by? Do you have a hand that benefits from making the pot larger? And what kinds of mistakes are your opponents likely to make? 
let's just suppose, hypothetically, there are some players in this game who will call a raise with queen six offsuit. Your objective when you have ace queen is not to make that opponent fold queen six before the flop. You are a huge favorite against queen six, and many hands that you're raising are going to be favorites against, even even if not huge favorites. Um, you know, if you have ace jack, you are uh, you're a big favorite against queen six. If you have ace king, you're uh, I mean big enough that you're happy to, to put money in before the flop. Certainly, if you have pocket eights, um, if you have pocket kings, you're a big favorite against queen six. So the objective when you have good hands, hands that are strong enough to raise, is not to make your opponent fold bad hands. It's to get your opponent to make mistakes. So you want to make a raise large enough that your opponent's call is a mistake. If you, if you minimum raise, your opponent's getting a pretty decent price to call, and it's not really much of a mistake, if a mistake at all, for them to call with queen six. If you raise to $30, it's a mistake. But if your opponent would be willing to call a larger raise... Like let's say this opponent you know might call up to fifty dollars with a hand like this, then fifty dollars is the amount that you want to raise, not sixty. You don't want them to fold queen six. What you want you want to find you know what is the largest raise size I can use that my opponents will still make bad calls, and that's what you want. You want to maximize the size of their mistakes. That's not the same as maximizing your chances of winning the pot. I mean, if you're playing in a really loose game where raises get called by four players you're not going to be a favorite to win the pot, even when you have pocket aces. If you raise with aces and you get called by four people, you're not going to be a favorite to win the pot. That doesn't mean that you're making a mistake. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It certainly doesn't mean you're losing money. Because you also, the pots that you do win are larger. Right? I mean, if, if you're getting four to one on your money, you don't need to win half the time. You need to win 20% of the time, and you are going to win more than 20% of the time with aces. And you're going to win more than 20% of the time with ace-queen. The reason I think you should raise to more than $30 is just that you know, with, with so much money already in the pot, um, so like a, a pot size raise would be $36. Uh, and a pot size raise means that anyone who already has $6 in the pot is going to be getting 2 to 1 odds to call you. Um, I think that, actually, I'm sorry, a pot size raise would be $42. Um, I could even see going bigger than that. Like, I think. 50 to 60 dollars uh, might well be appropriate here um, you don't mind if someone folds a hand like jack eight suited that's fine if they call with jack eight suited that's also fine uh, what you don't want is to let them see the flop real cheaply you don't want to give them a great price you know jack eight suited does have a 33 percent chance of, of drawing out on you so your opponent is not necessarily making a mistake if they call a pot size raise with jack eight suited. now you don't always have ace queen sometimes you have aces so it's more of a mistake then but the point is you know your opponents are not making that big of a mistake and i know that like this is why i was making that the, those comments about bankroll earlier because I know that $30 feels like a really big raise in a 1-3 game, and it is a really big raise in a 1-3 game. It's not that big of a raise in a 1-3-6 game. And this is the problem when you're anchoring your raise size to something other than the size of the pot. You know, a lot of people do this with the size of an opponent's bet. They think, well, if I raise three times his bet, then I made a good raise size. No promise of that. I mean, that all depends on how big your opponent's bet was. If your opponent only bet a tenth of the pot, then you know, raising three times that is still a very tiny raise. If your opponent overbet the pot, raising three times that might be too big of a raise. The same thing here. I mean, when there's straddles in the pot, raising to $30 is still offering a pretty good price to those callers. It's not terrible. I mean, it's, I don't think it's an awful raise size, but I think you can do better. I think you can make it $50 and you get more money in the pot. And that's good for you when you have a hand like ace-queen offsuit. 
you were rarely going to flop trips. I mean, this, of course, is a fantastic flop for you. Well, <laughs> results-oriented-wise, it's a terrible flop. But, um, you know, if, if you just said, what kind of flop do you want when you have ace-queen, like queen-queen-six would be pretty high on the list. You're rarely going to get a flop this good. Most of the time when you have ace-queen, if you hit the flop at all, it's just going to be top pair. Top pair is a hand that is strong when you have a low stack-to-pot ratio. When you are risking... When there's already a lot of money on the pot and you don't have to risk that much more to get all your money in, it's worthwhile. So if you can see the flop with a stack to pie ratio of two or three, that's really good for ace-queen. In a heads-up pot, even stack to pie ratio of four or five is pretty good. You can make top pair and usually your hand is strong enough to get all in. In a multi-way pot, um, I mean the stack to pot ratio will more commonly be lower because more people are matching the bet, but you also need stronger hands to stack off. So I think in a multi-way pot, you probably want a stack to pot ratio more like two or three to stack off with ace-queen. Our hero, I think, ended up with just a little over that. Um, I know I, I said the effective stack was 400. It seems like it might have been more like 450. So the stack to pot ratio was a little over three, and that was after getting called by four people. And uh, I mean, I think Hero's hand was clearly strong enough to stack off given that he flopped trips, but I think on a slightly different board, a board like Queen 9 6, stacking off in a five way pot might be a little dicier for more than SPR 3. Uh, and that's one of the other advantages of raising a bit larger. Pre flop, you almost certainly have the best hand. I mean, if nobody re raises you, you probably have the best hand with Ace Queen. So you're happy putting the money in pre flop. No matter how many people call you, they're calling from behind. I mean, maybe they have a pocket pair and you're, I mean, you're still not really losing money in that scenario. Like you're getting called, your equity is always very good if you don't get re-raised pre-flop. You know, people are calling with many hands you dominate, like queen six, um, certainly ace jack, queen jack. Um, and then they're calling with pocket pairs where your equity is perfectly fine. So you can put money in very comfortably pre-flop with this hand, especially in a loose game where people are calling with many, many worse hands. And again, it's not necessarily about figuring out that you definitely have the best hand. Like even with a hand that's not so such a dominating favorite, ace, jack, king, queen, I'm still pretty happy to make large raises with those hands. Because in a loose game, people are going to call with many hands that are worse. It doesn't matter that sometimes they call with better. That doesn't make it unprofitable. And the goal is not, you know, when you have a strong hand in poker, your goal is not figure out if someone has one even stronger so you can get away. It's, it, this is a gambling game. One of the things you're gambling on is that you're going to be ahead more often than behind when you put all your money in. That's not the same as being sure you're ahead. It just means you're going to be ahead more often, often enough to justify, you know, given the pot odds, given what you're risking relative to what you can potentially win, um, you know, that tells you how often you, you need to be ahead. So I think having a lower stacked pot ratio, making a bigger raise pre-flop, is going to be good for your hand. Um, you know, the, the money going in pre-flop is good for you, and then it also, like you are ahead pre-flop, and then you're also setting yourself up well, where if you hit an ace or a queen, you can get the rest of the money in. If you miss an ace or a queen, you know, if you don't make a pair, you don't get some kind of good draw or something, which is rare, you know, ace-queen doesn't make a lot of good draws. So mostly, you know, it's a four or five-way pot, you're mostly going to be checking and folding if you don't make a pair. And that's fine. Again, you're not doing anything wrong. In a five-way pot, you have to accept that there are going to be a lot of pots you're not going to win. And the key is cut your losses when you're not going to win and, you know, just make sure that you're winning most of the pots where you do have the best hand. You know, you're not, you're not giving up too easily when you have a strong hand. You're appropriately giving up when you have a weak hand. So I want to make a slightly larger raise pre-flop. It has nothing to do with changing the outcome of this hand. Like, if we cause him to fold queen six, we've made a mistake. 
right? If he's going to call queen six for 30, but fold it for 50, then like 50 maybe is too big of a raise size. So it's not about trying to get that queen six out. We're not going to go back and replay the hand in light of, you know, knowing, knowing what his cards now are. That's, that's not the way we analyze this. Um, but I do like a larger, larger preflop raise. And that's especially true because one of the players who has money in the pot, the button, um, he has position. And that means he's even more likely to call than these limpers. I, I mean, all these players are going to be getting a decent price when you only raise to 30. But the button in particular, you know, not only is he getting a good price, but he's also going to be in position. And straddlers just like to call. I mean, that's why they're straddling in the first place. They want to play the pot. They want to put money in the pot. So again, you want to encourage that mistake and make a larger raise. So we go to the flop and we do get this, um, I mean, by all accounts, a very good flop for ace queen. And the next thing that I'm seeing here is some confusion about what kind of hand our hero has and what he should be trying to accomplish with it. Because on the one hand, he's talking about, you know, I feel good about stacking off with this hand. But then in the next breath, he's talking about, well, maybe I can represent a flush if another diamond comes in. And what if somebody has pocket sixes? You have an extremely strong hand. And that's, there's, there's a few ways that we know that. Uh, one is kind of comparing the rank of your hand to the stack to pot ratio. So you've got trips with a really good kicker and the stack to pot ratio is just a little higher than three. Even in a multi-way pot, you know, you just don't have to risk that much compared to what's already in the pot. Um, yeah, there's an outside chance someone has a better hand. They, you know, pocket six is a perfectly plausible preflop hand for someone to have. As Zachariah says, it's not terribly likely that someone has it. You know, there's of all the hands that they could be playing preflop, and this is another element of how you determine the strength of your hand is it depends on how loose your opponents are. The looser your opponents are preflop, the stronger this hand is on the flop. Because there's more ways for them to have second best hands. Right? A player who's calling preflop with queen six is presumably also calling with queen seven and queen eight and queen nine and queen ten. Like They're going to have trips with a dominated kicker more often. Yes, there's an outside chance they, you know, we, we can add another full house to their range, but we're also adding lots of dominated trips. I mean, these might also be players who are just stubborn with like jack six or king six. You know, gonna, they're going to put a lot of money in with a pair, certainly with a pocket pair. A lot of people are going to get stubborn here. So the point is there's a lot of hands that you're ahead of. And if you want to collect your winnings <clears throat> from all those hands you're ahead of, you have to accept the potential losses against the rare hand that you're behind. And you got unlucky here. You know, you, you ran into one of the few hands that you are going to be behind, and I would say you took an appropriate risk deciding to put all the money in with your hand, and, you know, you're just unlucky that he had it. I don't think there was, I don't think there was some clue where you should have been able to suss out that he had this and somehow avoid getting all your money in. I don't think you should ever be trying to make him fold a better hand, which would, you know, if we're talking about bluffing a flush, like, um... Or maybe he meant bluff a weak flush in the sense of like try to bluff someone off of a weak flush. But again, I just don't think that's you know when you have an extremely strong hand like trips, the goal is not make someone fold better hands. Right? The goal is get people to put money in the pot with worse hands. And that brings me back around to the idea of thinking in terms of like ranges and hand types and what you want to accomplish with your hand. Um, when you have a hand as strong as ace queen, you I mean you want to get money in the pot. And some of the hands that are going to put money in with you are going to be hands that your opponents perceive as monsters. 
stuff like king queen or queen jack and against those kinds of hands it's okay to check because they'll probably be willing to bet those hands themselves if they have trips they'll, they'll you know you don't necessarily have to drive the betting but there are other kinds of hands that might not be so eager to bet pocket sevens pocket fives seven six maybe even flush draws there are some other hands out there that might not bet if the hero checks or at least might not continue betting even if we do induce one bet and this i think is actually the biggest mistake in the hand not even the checking is necessarily a mistake but the way the hero is describing the decision to check you know he says i i was very fairly confident someone would stab at it well, let's get more specific about that which hands exactly are gonna are gonna stab at it and many of those hands, even if it's true that your opponent is going to bet if you check, they're also going to call if you bet. Like if your point is someone's going to bet if they have eight, someone's going to bet if they have seven, six, they're going to bet if they have queen jack. Okay, fine. That may be true. Um, some of those bets, I would argue, are, are mistakes, but people make mistakes. <laughs> Certainly this, this crew, it sounds like, makes mistakes. So that's plausible. But they're also going to call bets with those hands. So the question is, you know, why is checking better than betting? The risk of checking is what if they don't bet? What if they have a hand like that and they pot control it? What if they had a hand that would have called a bet, but they don't? Uh, they don't put that bet in because they don't bet when you check. Or what if they have a hand that, even if it does bet one, like if you, you check and call the flop and then you check again on the turn, they're not necessarily going to keep betting. And then all of a sudden you get to the river and there's still not that much money in the pot. Um, you know, what you're doing when you choose to check here is you're giving your opponent control of the pot and you're letting him decide how large he wants the pot to be. And he might make some bad decisions in that regard, but it's still not clear to me that that's better than just betting yourself. I mean, the, the whole point here is this game is extremely loose. People are calling with all kinds of stuff. Take advantage of that looseness by betting. I mean, honestly, you don't even have to worry about, like, how am I going to balance this or how am I going to make it obvious I don't have a strong hand. They don't care. They're not trying to read your hand. They're just playing their own cards. And if they have trips or pocket eights or seven six, they're going to put money in the pot. And if they don't, they're probably not going to bet anyway. So I don't think you're giving... I mean, the, the real reason to check, I would say, is not to induce someone to stab at it. The real reason to check is if no one has anything, you want to give them a chance to turn something. And this is a good board to slow play. Having the Ace of Diamonds helps. We're not so worried about a diamond coming on the turn. Not because we're going to try to bluff it, just because it's less likely someone has a flush with us holding the Ace of Diamonds, and you know our hand is, is a little more live if someone does happen to turn a flush. So the reason I say it's a good board to slow play is that there are a lot of ways the turn could improve someone who clearly who, I mean, who currently thinks of themselves as having nothing. Right? Consider someone right now has Jack-8 or King-10. Those hands are probably just folding if you bet. But they could easily make a pair, and once they do make a pair, they're probably going to put some money in the pot. Or they could pick up a draw and put some money in the pot. So there are a lot of ways your opponents can improve their hand on the turn by checking, and that, I think, would be the main argument for slow playing. Not to encourage someone else to bet, because hands that are going to bet are going to call bets anyway. The real reason to slow play would be to give other players a chance to improve to the point where they're going to put some money in the pot for you. But you should recognize, and, and our hero kind of does, he just waffles on it a little bit, you should recognize that your hand is strong enough to get stacks in. And the question you should be asking yourself is, what is the best way to get stacks in? What's the way that's going to result in me getting the most money possible in against as many worse hands as possible? 
It might be betting, it might be checking, but that's the question you should be trying to answer. Not how am I going to figure out if I'm behind, not how am I going to prevent someone from drawing out on me, not how am I going to you know bluff someone off of a better hand. The question should be, how do I get as much money into this pot as possible? You have a huge, huge, huge hand. Certainly, given the, the current stack-to-pot ratio and given your opponent profiles, you have an extremely strong hand, so you want to get clear on what your objective is, and it's to get all the money in. You found a way to do that. Um, whether or not it was the optimal way, I don't know, but I think it's a fine way. I don't think it's, I don't think it's you know, distinctly or definitively worse than uh, other ways of getting the money in. And you got unlucky to run into a second best hand. I don't see any reason to think that this player wouldn't play you know, queen eight, queen jack the same way. And as long as they are, as long as they're going to have all those dominated queens, then you just have to accept that like every once in a while you lose to a hand like queen six. And accepting that is a lot easier when you have an adequate bankroll, you know, when you can afford to lose a $300 pot, $400 pot, and just pull another $300 out of your pocket and reload. So that means you need to have enough of a, you know, a poker bankroll in terms of your finances, like money that's dedicated for poker, but you also need a pocket bankroll. That's a Tommy Angelo term. You also need a bankroll, you need to have enough cash on you <laughs> that, that you can afford to do this, that you're not going to pay ATM fees or you're not going to have to borrow money from somebody. You, know, you need to bring enough money. If you're going to be playing a game that's routinely one three six. I mean, you probably want to bring two or three thousand dollars with you when you go to play. My philosophy is I want to have enough room to have a bad night and still have room to have a bad night. Right, so, what does a bad night look like in a one three six game? I think it's you know losing a thousand fifteen hundred dollars is a bad night. So, I want to have room to lose a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars and still have another $1,500 in my pocket ready to go so that I can keep playing if the game is good. Now, there's a lot of frustration that comes along with losing, not all just the logistics of, of money management, but some of it is. Some of the reasons why people play less well when they're losing is that they want to keep playing and they know if they keep losing, they're not going to have money to do that. And so once they have their case money or close to case money on the table, they start getting nittier. They're less likely to raise when they should, they're less likely to call when they should, and that means you're passing off edges. You know, Every time you decide, well, it might be profitable to call here, but I don't want to risk it. It might be profitable to bet here, but I don't want to risk it. Every time you do that, you're giving something up. And that's why I think being adequately bankrolled is important. So, I mean, I do think this is a very good game. If people are calling big raises pre-flop with queen six, and uh, they're, they're straddling lots of pots and you don't have to straddle. There's a lot of money to be made in this game. Um, you do want to have the bankroll on the stomach for it. And you know, that's for you to decide whether you have it. Uh, you could make a mistake playing in this game if you are not prepared to take the appropriate risks. Um, but I think that if you do prepare yourself for those things, uh, I do think this has potential to be a very good game. Thanks for the kind words, Zachariah. Thanks for writing. And let's go talk to Peter Elson.
Uh, well, thanks for joining us, Peter, and thanks for writing the book. I uh, I read it. I enjoyed it. Uh, glad to hear that. Uh, that's what that's what every author wants to hear. <laughs> um. So, I mean, I, I do want to talk more about the book, but let's let's kind of start at start at the beginning. I mean, what what came first for you, poker or writing? Oh, a writing came. Well, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'll amend that. Poker came first. So, so I, I actually started playing poker when I was ten years old. Um, but you know, this is this is going back a long time. So, so it was nickel dime poker, sitting on my father's knee. He used to he used to have a game with a bunch of. He was a, a playwright, and uh, he played in a in a game with a bunch of his theater cronies, and <laughs> and. Uh, I mean, some of the, so I, so actually one of one of them was a uh, a playwright, later screenwriter uh, named Murray Shiskel, and uh, you might know Murray because he was one of he he wrote uh, the movie Tootsie. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, and uh, and also this is back in the days, and my dad was was sharing a brownstone with the actor uh, Jerry Orbach. Um, Fortunately, Jerry didn't play in those games. He he wouldn't deign to play in those games because he was a really good player. Um, but uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman did sit in on our game once. Wow! And I was, I think I was ten or eleven years old, and I had finally been allowed to play, and I lost, and I didn't have the money. But I had gone fishing that day and caught all these snappers. And so, so, uh, so Dustin Hoffman graciously agreed to <laughs> to accept snappers. You, you paid a gambling debt to Dustin Hoffman and snapper. <laughs> exactly, the fish paid in fish. Yeah, um, that's a solid poker story there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the the thing that actually had the biggest impact on me in terms of how I perceived poker was um, one summer we we were uh, we we had a house in um in uh not in bridgehampton in watermill and um and one night l- late at night probably you know mid past midnight um all of a sudden there was the sound of honking horns in our driveway we had a circular driveway and they were these i looked out i woke up it woke me up i looked out the window and there was a rolls royce and a Ferrari going around and around the, the circular driveway. So <laughs> I went downstairs, all the adults were up, and these two guys came in, both of them theater guys, uh, who had been playing in a game with Henry Austin Clark, who owned the Long Island Automotive Museum. And uh, one of them had won ten thousand dollars and a rolls royce and the other had won six thousand and a ferrari and as a i mean i i think i was probably nine or ten years old and i was given a choice of going for a ride in one of the cars i i chose the ferrari um but that you know i mean that made an indelible impression on on me and i thought wow you can do this you know playing poker um, so I, I was sort of hooked, you know, forever after because of that. Um, it, it really opened my eyes to the possibilities. And um, 
And then as far as writing goes, I, I, you know, I come from a family of writers, uh, my father, my uncle, um, my mother, who at the age of 93 has just written a memoir. Um, and, and I, um, in almost because of that, I, I sort of consciously stayed away from it. It was like joining the family business. Um, and I, it was sort of the last thing I wanted to do, but, but suddenly at the age of, uh, at the age of, uh, 17, I, I started writing a novel, um, which I never finished. And, um, and my, my mother read the, the few chapters that I wrote and, and she said, you know, it's, it's pretty terrible, <laughs> but, but you do have some sort of, you, you've got narrative drive. And, and so I, I, I sort of took that. And by the time I got to college, um, I, I was fancying myself um, a, a writer. And then my, in my freshman year in college, I wrote a short story. Um, I spent my first two years at, at UC Berkeley. And I submitted this story I, I had managed to get into. I was the only freshman. Leonard Michaels, who was uh, a wonderful short story writer, um, was a professor there, and I, and I managed to get into his class, which was an accomplishment. And I wrote this story that he actually didn't like, but I submitted it to this university-wide uh, short story contest. And I went down to my mailbox one one day, and there was a letter with a check for I think $150, and I had won this university-wide short story contest. And so that was, you know, that was like, that was really the first time with, with writing that I thought, oh my God, you know, I might actually be able to, to do this. Um, and uh, I just kept going from there. And were you in fact an Ivy League bookie? So, so Ivy League bookie is, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer um, in that um, I, I was a bookie and I did go to an Ivy League school but I didn't do them at the same time. Ah. Um, so, so that came uh, years after uh, I had graduated from Harvard. Um, and I, I had moved, I'd been living in Chicago. I'd moved to Chicago to be with a woman that I was in love with. And it didn't work out. And I sort of limped uh, home to New York by way of Provincetown, uh, where I went to try and write an a novel again. I had failed several times to to start and finish a novel, and I did that yet again. I had been making a living though as a freelance magazine writer at that point, and I got back to New York uh, with you know without really two dimes to rub together, and I was staying in a in a um, I was house sitting uh, in an apartment when someone was away for the summer, and. Um, and I, I, um, one, I, I couldn't get any, for some reason that, that period in the magazine world, uh, things had dried up. So I couldn't get any magazine work. And, um, and I, I got a, a phone call and then a, a ride, uh, up to a friend's house in Sag Harbor with her son who was driving up there and, the last time I had seen him, he had been um, uh, sort of a snot-nosed teenager on a skateboard, and now he was uh, in his early twenties, 
and he was driving a fancy sports car and he had a beautiful blonde in the passenger seat. And I was like, what the hell? What happened to you? And uh, during the course of the ride up there and, and over the weekend, he told me about his job working for a bookie. And um, after the weekend, I got a call from him. And he said, you seemed really interested in, in the bookie thing. We actually need uh, a clerk in the office. Do you want a, do you want a job? And I, and I took it. I said, yes. And, um, uh, you know, the, the thing is, I, I spent 13 months doing that. And uh, it was kind of an incredible experience, um, you know, straight out of Damon Runyon. And, and, uh, and so what, what does a clerk do exactly? So a clerk really just um, answers the phones and takes bets and, and gets paid on an hourly basis or a shift basis. And not a lot. I mean, you don't make a lot as a clerk. Um, mm. But you're, in a way, you're like a young associate at a law firm. And you, you in order to uh, justify your continued existence uh, as a clerk, you have to start bringing in business um, betters. And, um, and once, you, once you get a certain number of betters, uh, they might deign to give you your own sheet um, and some sort of deal based on that sheet where you might be getting, you bring the sheet to the office, they're responsible for, for uh, all losses uh, and you get 25% of all wins, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that was, you know, and, the, and, and the thing about the bookie culture is it's, it's a little, you know, it's a lot like a fraternity. Um, and so there's a, a hazing process that goes on. And, and in my case, it, it was particularly harsh because I had, you know, gone to this, you know, fancy Ivy league school. And so they, they really put me through the ringer. Um, but uh, it it made for for a good story, and and you know it's funny because when I started working there, I, I'd been there a couple of weeks, and uh, a writer friend of mine named Legs McNeil um, lived uh, sort of en route, the route I took to to go to the office, and so occasionally, either on the way there or on the way back, I would stop in and say hi to Legs and start telling him about what was going on there. And he, he said, Jesus, man, you, you got to write about this. I mean, I hope, <laughs> I, hope you're, I hope you're taking notes. And so I then began to take notes. And every day when I would get home from a shift, I would just sort of, you know, spill it all out. And, and it was, you know, and I, I mean, one of my, one of my um, strengths as a writer was I, I, I had a good ear for dialogue and, and I was able to remember uh, you know, whole conversations. And so, so that gave me a lot of the material because the guys were incredible characters. I mean, they were just, you know, and, and um, one of them is I'm, I'm still very good friends with. He's no longer a bookie. He actually uh, started a, um, a biotech company, which he just sold for a shit ton of money. Um, and so he's, <laughs> he's, he's retired now. Yeah, I, I would imagine the um, that the head for dialogue is useful also because it probably uh, would be discouraged to be taking notes while you're on the job. 
Yeah, yeah. Although I will <laughs> confess that sometimes, you know, if something was really good and I was afraid that I was going to, you know, forget a few details of it, I would I would get up and go to the bathroom and, you know, and scribble something down. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's also a whole thing because the, the guy who did become my good friend, he, he sort of caught, you know, he, he was a, a sharp guy and he, he was like, you, I know you're going to write about this. <laughs> you know, he said, but and he sort of would, you know, mock, threaten me and, and say, you know, and then and then it would end up with him saying, you just better make me look good. So. I, I would love if you had any more sentences that began with the thing about bookie culture is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know very little about bookie culture, but I imagine it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I could just read the book, but yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a book I had a lot of fun writing, um, and I and it also was a book that, in a way, saved my life because um, uh, at 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 the end of that experience, you know, I having never been able to start and finish a book. Um, I had started several novels, as I say, and had never been able to bring one to the finish line. Um, that to to be able to start and finish that book was huge for me, and and proved to me that that I could do that. And you know, as it turned out, the book also had you know I I I got a good agent. Uh, there was a, a bidding war for the book. It sold to the movies. Um, you know, it, it really changed my life in, in a lot of ways and, and, and gave me um, a, a profound sense that I, that I could actually um, do this. But that's not to say it was easy after that. And it, it was, in fact, the opposite. And for me, it's always, you know, there's, there's a, a self-destructive part of my character that has never been able to stand prosperity. And... Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, I'm the kind of guy who would, you know, go to a gym and, and work out and get in shape. And then as, as soon as I got into shape, I'd let it all slide. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> it's, yeah. Were, were the bookies your entree to uh, underground poker or were those separate? No, those were separate. So I had, I'd been playing, as I say, you know, I started playing poker early. Uh, by the time I got to, uh, to Harvard, uh, I was I was pretty good, you know. I mean, at the t- at that time, what you know, what passed as pretty good, and uh, we had a regular Wednesday night game at the the Harvard House that I lived in, um, and and then um, that was I mean, believe it or not, I mean this is a it's a long time ago, and the World Series of Poker hadn't been going on very long at that point, but there was an article about it in Sports Illustrated. And, and uh, you know, it talked about Amarella Slim and, and Puggy Pearson and all these, these great characters. And I read that article and I, I introduced the idea at our game of having near the end of the year a, a mini World Series of Poker, which we did. You know, we were college students at, at the time, a, a $200 buy-in, which is what we decided the entry would be was a lot of money mm-hmm. and we and so we played and we weren't playing hold'em hold'em was still you know not in the mainstream uh but we played all of our crazy games and over the course of of three days 
And I had been, pro- I would say immodestly that I was the best player in the game, in, in the cash game. But there was a math whiz who played with us and he understood the tournament structure better than anyone. So the two years that we actually played the World Series of our little mini World Series of Poker, he won both times. And and I I realized that there was something he knew that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, then when when I was in New York and when I was during the time I was working as a bookie, I started playing uh, poker at the underground clubs, specifically uh, the Mayfair, and then later the the Diamond Club, which were you know the the preeminent clubs in New York at at that time. And and I'm. I wasn't playing in the, in the big game. They had what was called a baby no limit game, which was five five. Um, the the big game was uh, was Eric Seidel and Howard Letterer and Jay Heimowitz and um, um, Billy Horan and Jason Lester. You know, it was, re- it was and Noli Francisco. It was an all star cast, um, and you know, I was in awe of those guys. Uh, but aspired to to be them. What was the culture of that place like? I mean, did, so you knew who those people were. Were you were you friendly with them? Were you interacting with them? Yeah, yeah, I was I was interacting with them. In fact, I, I don't know if you you guys if the name Billy Horan means anything. That was that, of, of the ones you rattled off. That was the one I did not recognize. So me, so, me either. Yeah. Yeah. So Billy and and Jason Lester were the number one and number two ranked backgammon players in the world at that time. And they were both amazing poker players. And I actually introduced Billy uh, to to uh, a friend of mine who he started a relationship with. Um, and she's she's an incredible character. And she used to, she sort of half stalked Billy Horan. She she mapped out his his daily route from he he was living at, at the uh, the Gramercy Hotel, and she, she would say, so he goes from the Gramercy Hotel to to you know this coffee shop, and then he goes here. It was it was pretty funny. Um, he was he was um, not only a a great poker player, but he was a really sharp sports gambler. I remember sitting in a bar with him once, watching a a baseball game. And he described what was going to happen before it happened. And I, I just couldn't, I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. Really, you know, somebody who just, just knew that stuff cold. Do you miss the era of poker when everybody had a little bit more of a distinctive story and, and poker brought out excellent all-around gamblers? Like the, the best backgammon players in the world wouldn't stand a chance against um top poker players now with all this domain specific work that the top poker players have done um and i think that's sort of the way of the world but i also miss the time when there were sort of distinctive you know epistemologies and and skill sets then that people brought to the game and that sustained them at very high levels in the game Do, do you miss that too I do, you know. I mean, I I miss, you know. There there was a romance to that time that that just doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, everything is is data driven these days, and and you know, and and about math and um, there, you know, back in those days, the the great players were pretty much all seat seat of the pants guys. 
you know, they were all operating. I mean, first of all, it it took so long back then to get good at the game. So the best players were all in their, you know, in their 40s and early 50s. Um, I mean, there were a few young players um, who who sort of went against the grain of that. Um, but but the other thing is that, you know, Ivy League kids weren't, you know, and, and college kids weren't playing poker in that way during that time. So, you know, it's also um, a product of, of just people with more intellect sort of tackling the, the, you know, the, the, the problem of poker and, uh, and, and arriving at, at better and better solutions. Um, yeah. I would think too, is was kind of a specific, I mean, it wasn't just random people with, with intellect driving, cause there were other, like, be- because it was kind of an underground thing, it seems like it was often kind of uh, people who were like, edgy for for one reason or another people who who didn't i mean we still get a little bit of that in the poker world but it, it seems like it was a lot of kind of like misfit intellects who were who were drawn there specifically absolutely absolutely and then and, and you know don't get me wrong i mean the, those guys who were seat of the pants guys were you know were were brilliant guys but they were absolutely misfits and and outlaws and and um you know, and and in that they they shared that in common with with the the guys in the bookie world, mm-hmm. uh, who were also really bright guys, but guys who for for one reason or another, you know, and often in, in in often because they were degenerate gamblers, and that's how they they wound up in the in the bookie business. I mean, one of the guys in our our bookie office had had run a couple of companies, but but then gotten into all sorts of trouble with his gambling, and you know eventually. He he understood that that he was better off being on on the right side of of if he was going to be engaged in gambling <laughs> right. to be on the right side of it you know and 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 getting the juice not not paying it. And I would think I mean given that bringing in business was was part or a big part of the job you know has the connections and knows how to talk to um, people and like knows what people are going to be looking for I mean I think there's a lot there'll be lots of reasons why uh, a, a serious gambler would be a good candidate for recruiting other serious gamblers yeah absolutely I mean and you know and I, I gotta tell you I mean I you know I was I knew a lot of uh, poker players at, at the time I started working as a bookie but in those days for whatever reason there weren't a lot of poker players of my acquaintance who were gambling on sports. So I found it difficult to recruit um, sports gamblers. Um, that, that is surprising. That is not what I would have guessed. I, I know. And I, you know, I feel like it's, it's changed somehow. And maybe it's just the, you know, the guys that I, I was uh, playing poker with already had bookies. Um, and, and so didn't, you know, didn't need, uh, but, you know, but, Gamblers always want another out, um, so so I don't know. I mean, it may have just been my failing, um, but yeah, I, I'm I you know I I feel like every, all poker players that I hang with now bet on sports or play fantasy or you know have have some other outlet for their degeneracy. And did you? Um... And I imagine this is, is answered in the book also, but I've not read this one. Did you know Stu Ungar yourself, or how did that book come about? Yeah, I, so I I met Stewie back in 1988. 
I went out to the Super Bowl of poker um, to do a, a story on poker for the Village Voice. And the Super Bowl of poker was a tournament that Amarillo Slim hosted at Caesars Palace. And Stewie won. And uh, um, he, uh, he got heads up with Jack, gentleman Jack Keller. And, and he won. And then he and Doyle sort of wandered off and immediately put his, his winnings to, to work at, at the sports book. <laughs> so I got a, a, you know, a full taste of, of what Stewie Unger was about. Uh, but I then got, I didn't get involved in the Stewie Unger book until um, much later. Um, my co-author, Nolan Dalla, uh, was originally in in 1997 and, and 98 was um, going to do Stewie's autobiography and got a contract from Simon Schuster and and then in the middle of, of Nolan writing the book Stewie died um, and so Nolan then had to take you know all of these notes and and recordings that he had done and think about turning it into a biography um but nolan had had never uh never written a book before and had never uh certainly no, never undertaken anything like that and so i was i was brought in by nolan's agent to uh to co-author it um and so um you know, Nolan had had sort of sketched out a, a rough first draft, and I, I I took that and and pretty much went you know back to page one, and and started over um, and 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 gave the book more more structure and and you know hopefully a little bit of style too, um, but it was you know it was it was a it was a great experience for for both of us and and Nolan's writing has has evolved you know, incredibly since then. And he's, he's a terrific writer now. Um, but, you know, at that point it was, it was still pretty much, um, new to him. How, how different, right? So, I mean, you've written memoir, biography, fiction, uh, how different is your approach Right. I mean, I guess in, in the case of the, the biography, you already had, you know, notes coming in from from someone else. But you know, how much do the, the skills transfer from uh, from one form of writing to another? It's it's very different. Um, the the thing about writing nonfiction is that you you already know that the the, the pieces of the story are are there um, and that that you really have to stick to them. And it's just a, a matter of, of figuring out a, a structure for them. Um, sometimes that structure um, tells you how to, how to do it. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's more difficult. Um, I mean, certainly when I, the, the first big poker piece I ever wrote was, um, was for uh, Esquire, and it was on Johnny Chan, and it was it was an incredibly difficult piece to write in part because Johnny didn't understand what his role was as as a subject and and so he sort of fought me and and the best 
there's a there's a wonderful Gay Talese um, piece about Frank Sinatra called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, which the the piece it became kind of meta because uh, Gay had such a hard time um, getting getting Sinatra <laughs> to cooperate. And so, so he really had to write about that aspect of it, and that's 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 what I did with with Johnny Chan in that case. But when I wrote when I wrote um, Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie, which by the way is being re released um, September fifteenth, so in less than a week. Oh wow! Uh, under under a new title, I'm using. Well, I'll tell you that story in a second. But when I was when I was writing that book, um, after having failed you know, several times to, to write a novel, it was such a relief to have a story where I, I knew what the, the beginning, middle and end of it was. And I, I, you know, I didn't need to make it up. And that was, I think, what had always stymied me in, in writing uh, fiction was that the, the freedom is immense and there's, there's probably too much of it. Um, and so you can you can go in so many different directions, and I I think I would get paralyzed by that. Um, and and so the the one thing that that having now written you know uh, a number of books of nonfiction, it it taught me a kind of discipline, but it also um, taught me how to be more executive like in my in my decision making and to to just make decisions and then i knowing that i could revisit them later if i decided they didn't work and um for for my for my novel you know i i i knew i was going to start and finish it 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 was it was like this time i am not going to let this thing lick me but it took me much longer than it should have. And the book went through many, many, many drafts. Um, and, and for me, the, each draft was about sort of getting deeper um, into the characters and into the material. Um, but as far as the storytelling of it goes and the, and the plotting, I, I think I really, I, I learned some lessons about how to structure a, th a thing, even if it was fiction, that, that, that work in the book. Um, to, to, to get back to um, the, the, the new title of The Vig, um, that, when I, when I first published Confessions, um, I had a, a terrific editor at Crown named Karen Rinaldi, and she persuaded me so the, the book was originally called the vig and the subtitle was Conf confessions of an ivy league bookie and she persuaded me that confessions of an ivy league bookie was was a much better selling title she was probably right but reissuing the the book now under the auspices of my own imprint which is arbitrary press i'm the editor-in-chief so i can make those decisions and this that's the decision I'm making for this book. So so I'm getting to call it what I wanted to originally. And you know, we'll we'll see where how how the the public responds to that if you know or not. So with the new book, the only way to play it, I mean, did you set out saying I want to write a a poker novel? Was that an objective? 
Yeah, it it was. I mean, so I had always I had always thought about writing a poker novel. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to do it in a way that hadn't been done already. And you know, let, let's start from the uh, the the premise that they're really they're the as Martin Harris said. Um, he's he had a really nice um, compliment about the book. He said it takes its place at the shorthanded table of great poker novels. Um, <laughs> that is a good line. But but the the reality is that it is a shorthanded table because there really haven't been that many great poker novels, and and um, so I wanted to to do something that I felt none of those books had had done, and. And that seemed to be um, to take on what it would be like to be um, in a domestic situation, to be married, to to have a family, and to also be playing to be playing poker. Um, and part of the inspiration for that was that when I was I was playing in the underground clubs in in the uh, late nineties uh, and early two thousands. There was a guy who's remained a good friend of mine. Um, I, I I don't think I'm going to use his name here, but he was uh, probably one of the top two or three poker players in the city, if not the best. Uh, he was he was really just a f- fantastic player, but he got married and had two kids in quick succession, and suddenly the the pressure on him uh became uh intolerable i mean he it, it, he couldn't he couldn't seem to play with the abandon that he had always played with um and so so i watched that happen to him and thought that would be an interesting thing to write about um he also happened to be a, a painter which the the character and the only way to play it is is a painter, um, but that's pretty much where I mean there there are a few particulars that that you know apply to to him, but the resemblance begins there. It truly is fiction. Um, you know that character is is not him. Um, it's just this idea of of him that was the inspiration and and then you know i i don't know i mean comes out of my own unconscious mm. what what other books are at that the the shorthanded table of, of great poker novels i honestly like the man with the golden arm is kind of the closest thing i can even think of yeah. like, I, I don't really know that there have been many that are even like candidates yeah i mean i i think the, i mean the man with the golden arm i almost yeah, I mean, you Which know, is, I mean, that's barely even a poker. Novel. It's, I mean, bar- it's barely a poker novel, is what I was going to say. I, I mean, I would say that the the ones that and the ones that belong at the shorthanded table are um, the Cincinnati Kid, which, as we all know, is is terribly flawed as a poker novel, um, but it it would belong there. Um, uh, Jesse May's book, Shut Up and Deal. Um, again, you know, Jesse's fantastic writer the book has just a a wonderful voice um but as a novel it doesn't really it it doesn't do the things i need a novel to do 
um, you know, it's it's more like a it's more like a mood piece almost. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't really tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, uh, the King of a Small World by Rick Bennett uh, is a fantastic book. Uh, but Bennett, as as good as that book is, isn't isn't a great stylist. Um, the the book is is sort of written in this very transparent prose style. I happen to like that a lot. Um, I, I actually strive for that myself. Um, so that that's that would be there. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, it's almost it's it's hard to think of any others. Do you have any theory on why that is? I mean, it seems like it's a it's a very literary. Style. Like I mean, it it, it seems ripe for it. There, there's plenty of uh drama and, and excitement and kind of natural and even for people who, who know nothing about poker let alone for people who actually are interested in in poker but i mean it it seems very ripe for it do you have any theory on why it uh hasn't happened or, or is, is only now about to happen that someone is writing a great poker novel <laughs> <laughs> um I, I really you know i really don't it's it's a mystery it's 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 been a mystery to me I'm sort of glad because you know it, it means that the the playing field is wide open, um, but you know it's funny. I you guys did a a um, a podcast with um, uh, Doug Stewart, who is now my agent, um, and and as a res- direct result of your podcast, um, because on your on your podcast he you asked him uh, whether there had been a you know great whether there had been a great poker novel and whether uh, any good poker novels had come across his desk and he said no um i you know i'd love to i'd love to get one and so <laughs> i i listened to that i didn't know him at the time but i i i wrote him on the basis of of hearing that and uh and we we he ended up becoming my agent so, yeah i love that story yeah <laughs> That's quite. That's so, quite amazing. Uh, yeah, we've we've, or at least I've often said on the show that uh, it said that America has three great traditions: baseball, jazz, and poker. And I thought it was such a shame. Uh, I loved poker so much, and it didn't have a fraction written about it. You know, recording it, chronicling it uh, as as poker did, and that was for me a big um, motivation for doing the show. And uh, I, I like to think that we've succeeded in chronicling a lot of what might have otherwise gotten lost to history. But the idea that we've sort of indirectly helped create some of uh, you know, some some uh, uh, some poker culture, or at least indirectly, or or help people find each other, or or make an environment that's fractionally more hospitable to to poker. Um, uh, novels. That's that's that makes me happy. Thanks for telling that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean it, it makes me happy too. Um, and and I I love that kind of kismet thing. And and um, yeah, um, I, I'm I'm curious whether what you guys think uh, is the reason that that there have been so few uh, really really good poker novels. I can can I go first? Sure. I mean, my answer is half I don't know and and half just I, I'm tempted to relate it to that earlier thing that there's not that much great poker nonfiction. There's not that much great oral history. Like 
I mean, there, there's a lot of poker stuff out there, but relative to the, the tens of millions of Americans who play and, and what a big deal it is and how tremendously beautiful it is, it's not much. And uh, I think it has something to do with not just the undergroundness, but the, um, you know, occasionally the, the illiteracy of, mm. of poker, uh, the, um, it's dispersion. There was a strong culture of, of secrecy too. Uh, I, I can remember times in poker when in, you know, I, when you would be warned in strong language, never to acknowledge anybody in public. If you had seen them at the casino, you, you would never out somebody as being a poker player in public. Um, and, and, you know, I think there are also just mysteries. Sometimes I think culture is a mysterious thing. Some things develop uh, cultures, oral cultures, historical cultures, literary cultures, and um, poker never did that. I also think a lot of pokers just spent all their time just being completely consumed by the game. There was a, <laughs> there's an interesting, you know, for, for, for so many decades, poker was either something that you did not at all or extremely, extremely casually. Or it was something that just completely consumed you. The people who might have written great poker books or might have been great historians of poker um, either didn't know enough or didn't know the people who who could help them become it or or spent their lives just playing poker. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think I, I, just, I, just like one, one last addendum because a lot of people listening might not remember the time when you would go to the World Series and like, this is not to disparage anyone in particular, but one of the reasons I think that some of the writing or, or, or reporting was a little bit poor 10 years ago. It used to be a running joke, like none of the details of hands would ever be correct um, on tournament write-ups, et cetera, et cetera. And like, it's just an incentives problem. Like almost if you knew the hand rankings, if you could follow a hand of poker, you could make a lot of money in a chair at a poker game. <laughs> would you take so little to report on it for, for a tournament reporting outlet. Um, so that's, that's, that's all. Yeah. I, I think it's a story of incentives and also culture. And I'm a little bit confused. Sorry. And, and, and I'm sorry to have interrupted. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I think that's really interesting. I, you know, when I first went out to cover, um, the poker in Vegas and, um, so it was at the Super Bowl of poker and then and then uh, subsequent to that, I went out to to the World Series. And at that time, you know, I thought I knew a lot about poker. I didn't understand what those guys were talking about. And so there you know, there's a whole language that you have to immerse yourself in, not to speak of of the you know the the technical aspects of really being able to understand those. And I think that that you know there there aren't necessarily that many writers, as you say, who who immersing themselves in that world in that way, then then actually have the energy to to write about it. Um, and and poker itself is such a you know most writers want to, I mean they 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 love to distract themselves and and there's nothing there's no easier way to distract yourself than by going you know and sitting in a poker game. I'm just going to say another thing. Sorry, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I, I love the way you put that, Peter. And I would compare it to baseball versus football. I'm a great baseball fan, but it's so much simpler structurally than than football. And I've often wondered whether that doesn't have something to do with why there's so much more good baseball art 
film, fiction, etc., than there is football art. Um, which is that somehow the the structural simplicity of the game, the fact that an informed outsider can uh, can really get into it more and more and more. Um, I think somehow that kind of accessibility uh, allows art to flourish, and somehow more of what makes a great baseball player great is is his just ability to do something wonderful and and a little bit less of his ability to understand something wonderful and yes pitchers know a lot and yes people know a lot but like compared to what a quarterback or or even like a left guard needs to know not that much um and and i so i like what you said about poker because um i think for a long time there was just poker was more like football than it was like baseball and maybe that has something to do with the lack of really good poker art yeah yeah well, and I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the simplicity of baseball. I mean, you know, it's it it it's and the drama is in baseball is so it's it's so limited in a, in a sense because you you have the pitcher and you have the batter and you have the catcher, and there is that you know that wonderful moment before where everything is still before a pitcher winds up and throws the ball. And it's you know it's those kinds of moments that are that are much easier to to capture as a writer than yeah. than the the kind of mess that football is. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, what what percentage of people, even people who watch a football game, and I owe this this example to Matt Sankowitz. What what percentage of people could identify, given a picture of a formation, who all the eligible receivers are? Like could say exactly who 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 are the eligible receivers in a formation? Probably less than fifteen <laughs> percent, and that's a pretty fundamental thing. That's before you get into like the tactical side. That's just like who on the screen is allowed to catch a pass. <laughs> that's that's uh, right, and it's it's also that you can't see you can't see everything that is going on. There's just yeah. too much to watch. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll stop cutting you off, Andrew. Well, the, the one thing I, I was literally just saying can confirm uh, regarding writers distracting themselves by, by playing poker. Uh, as, as someone who has written two poker strategy books, um, it is a, a very good way to... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just—it's always like, well, I, I could just play poker instead of um, instead of working on this on this book about it. And, research, um, research. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it is it is hard. And I mean, poker players in general are not great with structure. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people got into playing poker in the first place was not wanting to like be on a schedule. I mean, I, I think there, there's some of that. The other thing I'm tempted to say, although this is certainly not a, uh, a full explanation because I think it applies to quite a few things about which books have been written, but, uh, or, you know, much great literature has been produced. But, um, I mean, I do think it's easy to do badly. Like, I mean, I think there's, I, I get the sense, if you just search on Amazon, like there are plenty of novels that sort of have poker as a theme to them and not that i've read most of them but um i mean i think like i think something that, that your book does well peter is it's not i don't I, I i didn't even read it fundamentally as a book about poker right even though poker like plays a very large role in it like i think the really central conflict is more in the relationship than in the the poker and there's sort of the um i mean the, the, the relationship is is taking a toll on the poker but like the poker is also taking a toll on the relationship um 
I, I think the fact that there was more going on there than just poker is important. I think of a novel that we're really just like 100% poker or trying to make all of the drama just about the, I mean, certainly trying to make it about like a hand of poker or about a poker tournament or something. I, I think that would be a stretch. And I think we end up with a lot of the, you know, what we've seen in, in bad, the examples come more readily from movies where the drama ends up being about, oh, this player drew to a, a straight flush at the same time that this player had quads. It's just the, the kind of thing that is, it's not really the exciting part about poker. It might be the exciting part or the, the, the sort of superficially exciting part about it, but it's not what's truly interesting about the game. I think it's easy for people who are not deeply immersed in the game to kind of latch on to the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, what what I really uh, strove to do in the hands that I do describe um, is, is for them to play some fundamental role in terms of what it said about the, the character um, of, of the narrator and or or the people that he's he's involved in the hands with and for it to, to serve some some function of moving the story forward, um, you know, because otherwise it's, it's just sort of random hands and you don't really, you don't really care, you know, it, it might be an interesting hand, but without that added resonance, it, it, it isn't, it doesn't belong in a novel. Um, and yeah, I mean, so, and, and it is a book about relationships and, and specifically uh, the, the relationship of, of the, of husband and wife and father and son um, and, and father and daughter. Um, and, and all those things uh, were, were absolutely essential to, to my wanting to write this book. And, and, and poker in a sense was, is, is the, the backdrop to, to all of that, but it's no less crucial for, for being a backdrop. How did you think about, because I mean, th this is obviously a book that's not only for a poker audience. I mean, I, I imagine there are a lot of people who will seek it out because it's a, a poker book, but I think it, it can certainly be read and appreciated, and, and I'm sure will be read and appreciated by many people who are, you know, casual poker players or, or not poker players at all. How did you think about striking the balance of, you know, it's, there are some people who are going to need the rules explained to them or aren't going to know what a flop is or aren't going to know that a flush makes a makes a straight. And you do need some of the, like you do want to have some drama around the actual hands of poker and people do need to understand the rules of the game in a way that if you're writing a novel about baseball, you can kind of take for granted that people know what a home run is. And I don't think you can do that with poker. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's what that was for me, one of the, the biggest challenges. And I'm not sure if I have successfully met that challenge, I, you know, I know that there are people who won't understand some of the, the poker action. They won't, you know, they won't understand the terminology. Uh, in fact, you know, there are people who have told me who, who are not poker players who say, gee, I wish you had a, a glossary in the book. But to me that, you know, a, a novel should never really have a glossary. I was going to say that's, that's and, not a part of a novel. Right. And, you know, that's fine for nonfiction, but uh, I felt like, you know, there was, it didn't, it almost doesn't matter. Um, it's, it's sort of like added value if you do understand, but it doesn't necessarily detract from, from the book if you, if you don't. And, you know, I mean, I, going, going back to, to, my feelings about wanting to write a poker novel 
I met um, Brian Koppelman and David Levine uh, back back when before they they made Rounders before Rounders was was shot, and um, we became fast friends. And they gave me their script, and I had been thinking about doing a, a poker script. But I thought you had, you know, you'd have to dumb it down so much for Hollywood that I had been thinking about it in in dramatically different ways than this script of Rounders that they gave me. And I read it, and I was like, Jesus, I, how how is it possible that they're going to make this movie? There's just there's too much there that people won't understand. I didn't think you could do this, but I think Rounders, you know works works in that same way you don't really need to understand necessarily what's what's going on in in the game um for it to to be a good movie and just by the way all the pretty horses wonderful novel i did not know what a latigo is or anything nor do i know spanish yeah it's it's just a thing i think yeah, yeah. And done. I think in in some ways, you know, having it it gives for for people who don't know it, it does give it a kind of added authenticity, mm-hmm. and you you know you feel like you're in the hands of of someone who's actually lived it and knows it, and and that that's that's a good feeling. So the book is coming out. Um, I'm sorry, you did tell me the date, September fifteenth, or was that the other? Yeah, no, they're, they're both coming out September 15th. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and you know, when I was, I mean, coming up as a as an aspiring young, young writer, I remember there was a, uh, a thing about Tom Wolfe where, where he had two books coming out on the same day. And it was, you know, it was in typical sort of uh, Tom Wolfe hyperbole. Tom Wolfe has two books coming out out on the same day exclamation mark exclamation mark and i i just thought that is the coolest thing ever so <laughs> you know so so now I, you know as as i am the, the the publisher of 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 these books i i you know with my imprint i can do that and and i thought that would be a fun thing to do yeah. so this is is probably just a naive question about the the publishing industry but um if you are the publisher what's the agent's role like, oh, I, I think the agent's yeah, role yeah. would be fine no, that's, that's 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 a really good question so i mean the history of of my trying to get this novel published in in the mainstream um is is sort of long and tortuous um i i had a an agent before doug um who was a very nice woman but i she really didn't know how to sell this book, and it may not have been her fault. I mean, it may just be that um, the the fiction, you know, the fiction market right now in in mainstream publishing is incredibly difficult, and it's even more difficult if you happen to be um, an aging white man. I hate to say that. I mean, it's just the reality, and 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 probably deservedly so. Um, but. She she couldn't sell the book. And then Doug, when he agreed to take on the book, he said, look, you know, I'll be honest with you. There there aren't that many places left for us to take it. Um, and he he took it to those places and, and none of them wanted it either. I, I did actually have I, I had two deals in place with indie publishers 
And one of them fell through because the 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 publisher was out of his fucking mind. Uh, I mean, I think he went I think he went off his meds, but I I asked him a question and via email and he sort of like just went off on a rant about how I was it was it was a very reasonable question and he's he said I can't work with difficult authors and and so I went from he was going to publish both books by the way he was going to reissue uh, confessions too and so I went on a Friday I had a deal to to publish both books and Sunday the the deal was canceled um, so, so that happened. And then, um, and then it was going to be published by, uh, another, uh, small press and the editor who loved the book, uh, told me that he thought I would be better off publishing the book myself, that I would, I would do better with it. I would make more money and I would have more control. And, and so I, I sort of took him at his word and, um, and, uh, my 14 year old, daughter who she started writing a novel when she was 12 and finished it when she was 13 and um which was just last march and i hadn't seen it while she was working on it she gave it to me and i read it and i thought wow this is this is kind of amazing this is publishable and so she has been the canary in the coal mine i (laughs) i I published her her book just to just to learn what was involved, but also uh, because I thought it would be a, a cool thing for her. Fun, funnily enough, she is she doesn't want anyone. The book's on Amazon, but she doesn't want anyone to read it. She's embarrassed by it. She's 160 pages into her next novel, which is I I haven't seen any of that either. But but I think she's made a quantum leap. Um, she's, she's a phenomenal writer. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. She's 14 years old and, and she's, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't do the things she was doing, you know, when I was in my thirties. Um, so, um, so that, anyway, that was, that was how I, I learned about what was involved and I, and I continue to learn. And so my press is, I mean, Right now, it's all in the family. I'm I'm going to be publishing my my uh, 93 year old mom's memoir. Um, my mom uh, happens to be the sister of Norman Mailer, um, who's my uncle. Uh, so that's I, I mean, not to give it its bona fides, but but she has a lot of interesting stories to tell. Um, and then um, I, I've been approached by several people who want me to publish their books, and so I'm I'm sort of moving beyond into the world of of being uh, a real publisher and somebody who who publishes um, you know books books that I happen to like. Well, good luck with that. Come come back on the show and tell us what it's like to be a, a poker player turned book publisher. I, I would love to. I would love to. And uh, where where should people pick up the book? Amazon or somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I I always prefer if they can get it from their independent bookseller. Um, there's a thing called Bookshop dot uh, org um, that that uh, is linked to a bunch of indie bookstores, 
And I, I always do my best to support indie bookstores, but the book is on Amazon. I know that's easy for, for most people. Um, I confess I, I, I use it too much myself, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's on Amazon and it's in various formats. So there is, there is a hardcover, there's a paperback, there's an ebook, and there is also a, a, an audio book, um, and the guy who who uh, did the audiobook is a fantastic actor, and uh, I, I think the the audiobook's really entertaining. And I know a lot of poker players don't you know don't actually read; they listen to books. So right, so so that's a good thing. Great. So uh, the book again is the only way to play it. That'll be available September fifteenth uh, from your indie bookstore, uh, bookshop.org, or amazon uh thanks peter thanks guys i really uh, it was it was a lot of fun thank you very much bye Devotion of a car, my life.